Today we look at the historical context for the uh, fourth episode of season one of Twin Peaks in 1990. This was the uh, Lars funeral episode. The night it aired, uh, there was uh, cheers and other big shows on. And then also we're going to look at what the number one movie was, what was on the cover of Time magazine that week, and what the news stories were. We'll even end with a clip uh, covering something that was uh, both in the news and on TV, as it happens. It aired at 9 o'clock p.m. on Thursday, April 26, 1990, continuing to slide for the fourth episode in a row, this time to 16.7 million viewers from 19.2 million last week, with the audience share dropping to 18% from 21%, earning 11.3 in the Nielsen's versus 13.1. So by now, Twin Peaks was doing less than half the ratings of the pilot. If viewership continued to shrink, it would be hard to imagine a second season. Surprisingly, the competition on the other networks doesn't really make up the difference in audience share, so more viewers must have been tuning in to cable programming or maybe PBS than in the weeks before for whatever reason. Max Monroe was gone, off the schedule probably for good. In its place, CBS aired a new episode of Falcon Crest, a nighttime soap about a family feud between wealthy wine magnates in California the show had been very much a part of a triumvirate in the 80s, as Wikipedia describes it, occupying the middle ground between the two extremes of the genre, being more glamorous than Dallas, yet not quite as outrageous as Dynasty. While it placed in the top 10 hit TV shows from 1982 to 1985, by 1990 it was in serious decline. Soap Opera Digest dubbed it during the previous season, Most Ruined Show. Much of the ensemble left, and it's long, in its long-standing post-Dallas time slot of 10 p.m. on Friday nights, its ratings dwindled until it disappeared from the air in mid-March, canceled by executives because it had dropped all the way to number 81. Now, it returned on a new night against some of the hottest competition on TV, ready to limp out its final term as a canceled show, granted a reprieve to end somewhat gracefully. So, as Twin Peaks faced its own prospects in the future, that probably looked a little ominous. That soap opera that had been a massive hit 10 years earlier, now counter-programming it to it, you know, limping through the ratings, a little unnerving, I guess, if they're looking at, you know, how they're doing and how they hope to do in the future. Interestingly, this episode of Falcon Crest, Crimes in the Past, involves a time-worn noir plot, which may be familiar to some listeners, in which a mechanic has been paid to tamper with someone's car. Perhaps under the theory that it takes a crook to catch a crook, this character is now hired to prove that someone else has been a victim of vehicular sabotage. And in classic soap fashion, there's also a confession of true paternity and a woman awakening from a coma. On NBC, Cheers ran a new episode, Cry Hard, the first of a two-parter involving corporate sabotage and a love triangle centered on Robin, played by Roger Rees, who uh, Sam's on-and-off-again flame Rebecca is currently pursuing and or trying to expose, depending on how his affections are tending. During Twin Peaks' second half-hour, NBC ran the second episode of Wings, Around the World in 80 Years, in which a retired pilot concludes a globe-trotting trip he never finished. Again, NBC's must-see-TV block handily dominated the night, along with The Cosby Show and Different World before and L.A. Law after. Only CBS's Knots Landing at 10 p.m. provided any real competition to these NBC shows, and uh, its ratings were higher than anything else on any other network, but still lower than any of NBC's programs. So NBC really was not threatened on Thursdays by uh, Twin Peaks, it seems. Um, I, I'm not sure if they were getting, you know, 
40 million viewers before Twin Peaks came up against it, but they were still doing pretty well. Leading into Twin Peaks this night, ABC ran another new episode of Father Dowling Mysteries. The previous week had been a repeat. Like the previous one, it involved art, in this case a drunken painter hired by the detective priest to touch up the church's frescoes. He's not very likable, but Father Frank and Sister Stephanie have to figure out who's trying to kill him once his studio explodes. Leading out of Twin Peaks in the 10 o'clock slot was an ABC News special called Peter Jennings Reporting from the Killing Fields, which ran instead of the usual primetime live this week, including interviews with former CIA director William Colby, Prince Sahonek, and other politicians, diplomats, workers, and journalists. The special covered the thorny thicket of U.S. policy in the Khmer Rouge, which was the Pol Pot-led regime that committed genocide in the late 70s before being overthrown by the invading Vietnamese. Although Pol Pot had his own roots in communism, the fact that he was ousted by the communist government of Vietnam, which had recently defeated the U.S. in a humiliating decades-long war, led arch-cold warriors Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher to actually back Pol Pot's claim to power, placing them on the side of one of the greatest mass murderers in history in a game of geopolitical brinksmanship. After 10 years, in 1990, this policy still remained in place, but with the end of the Cold War, it was starting to be questioned more pointedly. Onto the wider world, I mentioned in the last episode that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was number one at the box office for the fourth weekend on April 22nd, but I should have saved that stat for this episode instead, given the timing. So we'll save the next weekend's number one for next time. Will the heroes in a half shell still retain their perch for over a month? You'll just have to wait and see. While researching what happened on this day in the news, I think I received the starkest juxtaposition of serious and trivial headlines that I've ever encountered. Under historical events for April 26, 1990, the website I used as a reference listed 126 die in a 6.9 earthquake in China. And immediately below this, Danny Wood of New Kids on the Block steps on a stuffed animal and twists his ankle. Probably the most significant event on this day occurred in Colombia where Carlos Pizarro Leon Gomez, the left-wing presidential candidate in that country, was assassinated. He had left FARC in the early 70s to form the April 19th Movement, an urban guerrilla group. One of their most famous symbolic actions was to steal Simon Bolivar's sword from the long-dead revolutionary leader's home-slash-museum. And they declared, Bolivar, your sword returns to the fight. Pizarro was captured and tortured in 1979 and freed under amnesty three years later. In 1989, after 19 years, the group demobilized under condition of full pardons and the right to form a political party. When the accord was signed in the spring of 1990, Pizarro was killed by a paramilitary man while boarding a plane. He was one of three presidential candidates murdered during this election. The Time magazine cover for the week of April 16th featured a photo of Vice President Dan Quayle titled, No Joke, with the caption, This man could be our next president. A probing look by Gary Wills, to which my only response is, LOL. Incidentally, there is a news clip of Quayle from this period telling an interviewer that during a conference with the Soviets, Mikhail Gorbachev had actually pushed the Bush administration to find out who killed Laura Palmer. That actually is no joke, so I'll link the clip below. Tomorrow, we dive into the weeds of Twin Peaks itself, looking at character statistics, rankings, uh, coffee pie and donuts that are featured, locations that are in this episode, just kind of digging around as we do every Thursday. So you can check that out. You can rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts as well. And you can become a patron on patreon.com slash lostinthemovies. And to close off, here is a clip from that special with Peter Jennings, where he catches a U.S. official in a lie about arming 
the uh, troops that are fighting with the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. They ostensibly maintain these separations, even though, as I said, you know, both uh, Thatcher and Reagan supported the Pol Pot uh, coalition's uh, claim to power in the 80s. The Bush administration is trying to maintain some distance, and uh, it's revealed that it's not quite there. Age-old story that continues. Before this, it was uh, in the Iran-Contra scandal. It continues to today with some of the groups fighting in Syria and so forth. So, unfortunately, a, a uh, you know, in the 30 years since, some things never change. These are the foot soldiers of the Khmer Rouge. The last time the Khmer Rouge ruled in Cambodia, they killed more than a million of their fellow citizens. Cambodia's Prince Norodom Sihanouk. In 1970, at the height of the Vietnam War, he was unwilling to help the United States fight the Vietnamese. So the United States was not at all unhappy when he was overthrown. Today, Sihanouk is the leader of a military coalition fighting against the present Cambodian government, which was installed by the Vietnamese after they defeated the Khmer Rouge. Today, Sihanouk is intensely anti-Vietnamese. So now the United States is only too happy to be his benefactor. And Sihanouk's most powerful partners are the murderous Khmer Rouge. Then we would have to cut off arms. Up to the non-communist resistance. Correct. Uh, we are not supplying, I'm sorry, support. We do not supply lethal support, but we would have to cut off our support to the non-communists. According to sources on all sides of the conflict who know, the United States does supply weapons and ammunition to the non-communists. Our sources include current, as well as former, members of the U.S. government. So while the Bush administration may say there is a clear demarcation between the non-communists and the Khmer Rouge, it just isn't so in the war zone.